Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with our frequent guest and our good friend Phil Elliott from Time Magazine. Phil is Time's Washington correspondent and he's been with Time since 2015. Before that, he spent almost a decade at the Associated Press, where he covered politics, campaign finance, education, and the White House. He's covered three presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and now Donald Trump. We get a pre-midterm update on the politics in Washington and the White House. Phil, we've, we've talked many times, but we want to get an update on what's going on in the White House and, and in politics in general. Let's start off, if we could, with the um, aftermath of the Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, obviously, Judge Kavanaugh is now Justice Kavanaugh, but uh, we've got the president turning this into a uh, political football, uh, even more than it was, by going out at all of his rallies and even last night on uh, 60 Minutes saying that uh, uh, the only reason Kavanaugh got confirmed was because the president mocked Dr. Christine Blasey Ford at the Mississippi ra- rally. It's, it's an interesting um, display of honesty from the president, that this is what he believes to be true. And he he really betrayed anything, um, any deniability that the White House staff had built, had been working for weeks to build around him, saying, well, it wasn't really mocking her. It, it wasn't about politics. He was just trying to defend his nominee. Um, and the president just straight up said to Leslie Stahl, yeah, it was politics. I needed to win on this, and we won. So what? As though attacking this woman who had no obligation to come forward, who was a reluctant witness from the start. Her name got leaked. She got dragged into this mess, basically had her career, um, her life potentially ruined um, to no avail um, and, and to basically say she was um, just chum in this, in this, in this, in the water of shark filled Washington. Um, the indifference there and how he treated how the president treated her and treated by proxy, in some people's argument, all women, all, all women who have been part of the Me Too movement, um, may have really um, set Republicans' hopes of 
holding the House and the Senate back a little bit. Because for every voter who loves that Kavanaugh is on the court, polling suggests there's at least one, if not like 1.8 voters who are completely turned off by it and are now more motivated to vote for Democrats in retaliation as retribution for this. It really is a, an interesting dynamic to watch because every congressional district, every Senate race is different. But in, in every one of these cases, the strategists on both sides are trying to figure out not just how their candidate is doing, but how the president is seen. There, there is an overwhelming um, uh, consensus inside the political circles I'm, I'm calling that this truly has become a referendum on the president, that his name is not on the ballot. Here in a couple weeks, early voting actually started September 21st in Minnesota. Um, but it's, it's, this is the president's election to win or lose. And trying to measure voters' attitudes towards the president has become um, more important than the voters' attitudes towards the people who are in black and white on the ballot. So, so be specific, if you could, as, as well as you can with this kind of situation. Why would he say to Leslie Stahl, you know, I, I, I was the one who got Kavanaugh confirmed because I mocked this woman? Why? Well, I mean, a lot of this has to do with the president wanting credit for everything that goes well on his watch. Um, the tweets about... The stock market's through the roof, setting records. Um, he claimed victory on that. He was m uh, more noticeably silent as last week's stock market had um, some skittishness about interest rates rising, some uncertainty with our trade deals, um, just overall um, exhaustion of the president. Um, this happened on his watch. Justice Kavanaugh being confirmed uh, on his watch is something he wants credit for, and he wants to be the person at the center who made it happen. Not by the nomination, not by sticking with him, not by the hours and hours of right. mock, uh, interviews that his staff put together for him. Um, not from the fact they brought in the Fed, uh, Federalist Society chief, Leonard Leo, to oversee the process, and they built a really impressive infrastructure around then-Judge Kavanaugh, to help him weather this. Um, it, it came down to something that happened on TV that the voters see, the crowd in the room applauded, um, and it was the president taking him across the finish line. It, it really does go back to the president needs to see himself at, as the fulcrum on every major development in our country's politics when it makes him look good to his base. Well, now, that, that, that it's, it's a dangerous precedent, though, because if you're responsible for the good, does that mean you're then responsible for the bad? Well, I'm not sure that he takes responsibility for anything that that that's bad. But let me ask specifically, are, are there polling numbers that support him on this? I mean, you mentioned the polling numbers are, are quite the opposite. Uh, the base is the base, but it doesn't win elections just by the numbers in the base. Or does he say, you know, poll numbers be damned, I'm just going to say what I want? Well, there's an interesting, there's an interesting dynamic playing out, um, and every Senate race is different. But 
let's just take a look at, there's one study that's out of the centrist, middle-of-the-road third way. It's a think tank that grew out of Bill Clinton's um, policy team. And they went and looked at the 10 really important uh, Senate races right now. And their research, based on um, data from Catalyst, and so, I mean, th- these are legit numbers. Right. And, but this is a left-leaning, centrist think tank that base Republicans are expected to make up 40% of the electorates in these 10 races. By contrast, Democrats are looking at 27% of the turnout to be base Democrats. And right there tells okay. the story of why Republicans think that playing to their base is enough to edge out the base Democrats, in these Senate races in particular. It gets a little dicier, though, when you get into specific House races, especially when you have a, for instance, a female candidate running against a 20-year male incumbent. Uh, I'm thinking of um, Teresa Gaspar over in the Dayton area, over by you, um, that this is a first-time female candidate. She was a Republican until Barack Obama came around, and and she's running um, against a a very long-term incumbent over there. And you have these, particularly women who can speak to this issue, um, in a very compelling a way, and it's why Democrats are very excited about um, their prospects in these specific races. Um, every race is different, but they've seen a surge in donations, surge in volunteers, surge in phone calls. Um, I was talking with Alyssa Slotkin, uh, who's running in Michigan. She's a former right. CIA officer, um, one of the, perhaps one of the Democrats' best recruits of this cycle. Um, both parties will acknowledge that. And she, she was telling me that in her district, women have formed what, she, what they have told their husbands are book clubs, <laughs> that they, they have founded new book clubs, and that they go every week uh, with other women to do, presumably to read Crazy Rich Asians, but instead they're knocking on doors. They're making phone calls to, to help Slotkin's campaign. Um, that there's, and they were, these are um, nominally Republican women, who have just been so turned off by what they've seen in Trump's Washington that there's this underground surge happening among Republican women uh, for this one Democratic candidate in Michigan. You see that it's all anecdotal, but a lot of anecdotes make up a narrative. Right. And uh, we add to this. Now, I have to put this in context for our listeners. Uh, you and I get involved in conversation. I have to make sure that they understand. You know, we had an angry Judge Kavanaugh, angry Judge Kavanaugh, not just in his statement uh, after uh, Dr. Ford testified, but in his handling of uh, Democratic sit- senators. We had an angry Republican constituency on the uh, judiciary uh, committee. We had angry outbursts from some of those senators. Yet the president is working this term that the Democrats are an angry mob. Um, it, it, there's no base in reality necessarily, but have polling numbers said that that'll work? It depends on which poll. And again, if you're trying to base your entire 
campaign strategy or even explain the president based on polling. That's usually that, that's 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 typically a blind spot. Okay. That if you're following the numbers, numbers help and should help inform. They should not predict strategy. When you see campaigns run solely by polling, you you see them lose authenticity. Voters see right through them, and then they become garbage. Um, I'm thinking of Scott Walker's campaign that lasted like 14 days. Right. Uh, that um, you, you get into problems there. But there is indications that among Republican um, base voters, they see what happened on Capitol Hill as completely out of control. I spent not this past weekend, but like nine days ago, week, um, I went up as the Kavanaugh that was happening. I went into the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area and followed around a House member probably going he he's he's doing fine he'll probably be okay but he's a member of the freedom caucus the far, and he's a pretty major player um in that block of the republican party his name is scott perry um for, former military um pretty decent on the trail and he taught and I, you just following him around and listening to the conversations he was having with voters, we, we went to a pumpkin patch and an Oktoberfest. <laughs> this is why I love getting out of Washington. Right. Um, and all of them were convinced that they had internalized the message that the Democrats were out of control. There were these thugs on Capitol Hill. Um, and, and the images coming out of the Senate office buildings um, were not good. I was up there um, for part of them. Um, you could hear from outside the building standing inside the Capitol, you could hear people screaming at the building. It was a very loud and intense operation. But one woman I met in um, Dauphin County, Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, right. we were in a, a, a suburban office park at a get-out-the-vote rally, and she kept insisting to me that Democrats had murdered Republicans over this issue and that the Democrats were an out-of-control mob and running rampant um, just killing conservatives in this country. Wow. And no amount of fact-checking in the parking lot was going to convince her otherwise. Her friend, was, her friend just kind of stood there sheepishly and was like, you know, we all, we all have our beliefs and we all consume very different sources of information. Um, but there is that belief that many, that I won't say many people, but some conservatives have internalized, and that gives heart to conservative strategists who are really rowing against history here. I mean, history tells us the first term, first midterms for the party in the White House is a disaster. I mean, Barack Obama, if memory serves, was 63 seats. Right. Um, that it's just not, the, these are not good things. Yeah, it was 63 seats for Barack Obama in 2010. I mean, Bill Clinton lost 54 um, Ronald Reagan lost 26. Um, I mean, these are just not, these, these are, history is not on the side for the last hundred years. Uh, the party in power, I mean, thank you, Brookings Institution, for this cheat sheet I have uh, now on my desk. Um, on average, 35 seats in the first midterm in, an av in the House and an average of five um, in the Senate. I mean, history is not on the Republican Party side. They're just hoping the one-two punch of Kavanaugh coming so close to the election and just the sheer dollars that the RNC is able to raise um, may insulate them. Um, not just the RNC, but a super PAC run by Speaker Ryan, 
um, who's doing like $100 million <laughs> in television ads to defend it vulnerables, um, they, they might be able to break history. I mean, Donald Trump has shown time again, um, history, the gravitational pull of history does not matter when you're talking about him. Um, it's why you see him at the end. He's, he's hitting the road pretty aggressively um, in places where he won comfortably. He's not going to swing areas. He's only going to hardcore, deep red areas trying to drive up his base support. Um, there, he's, he, perhaps the White House is smart at thinking there, is no, um, there, there are no converts available. There is no persuadable voter left, and it's all just Team Blue versus Team Red. And getting out the base. Right. And it may be enough. I mean, that, that's... If, it if may be look, enough for the Senate, but will it be enough for the House? Well, I mean, it, it all of this noise. I mean, the House had nothing to do with the Kavanaugh hearing. Right. So it's easy for, um, say, Steve Stivers there in the central Ohio area to say, look, it happened in the Senate. We had nothing to do with it. Um, there, that is a factually valid argument, um, saying that the Kavanaugh hearing, the, the intensity there, you, you can't let the Democrats take credit for um, any, anything of any of the resistance in, in a House race. It had nothing to do with the House. Um, it, that said, if, if you're going to show up, if you're, if you're inspired by what you see in, um, say, I'm sorry, Claire McCaskill's yeah. um, in opposition Missouri. in Missouri, there's a pretty good chance you're going to vote for some other Democrats on the ballot, too. You know, out here in the heartland, we see things, and I always uh, try to uh, bring them up against your observations there within the Beltway to see whether we're in sync or not. It seems to me that the president has uh, calmed down on his Twitter feed as the election approaches. Is that a correct observation, and if it is, is this done by him or by his operatives? Well, let, let's be clear that no one is going to tell the president to calm down on Twitter, and he's going to listen. It's actually it's, it, friends of mine in the White House who have urged more restraint um, have found that the the result is the exact opposite because he <laughs> likes to prove them wrong. Yeah, and he he has time and again actually been shown he has a better sense of better spidey sense of what his base wants and needs. That said, numerically you're not incorrect. That it does seem um, I wake up in the morning to fewer tweets. Um, so do I. I look at it before I get out of bed, unfortunately. <laughs> I have the mobile alert, so usually I haven't had to, I still haven't had to set an alarm clock for a while because there usually is at least one tweet in the morning <laughs> right. to remind me that my day is um, starting on yeah, yeah. Um, what he's doing. That said, the notable thing to watch is how, how, le- how, how there has been less of an intense criticism of Bob Mueller in recent weeks, that just in terms of content, he's now focused more on the Democratic uh, midterm candidates, the Senate, a um, little bit of foreign mob. policy, yeah. the angry mob. 
it's more about serving his, the Republican Party's political agenda right now than his own perhaps legal peril with special counsel Bob Mueller. He, there have been, it does seem that he is getting um, a little um, more um, conservative, a little more restrained when it comes to openly trying to fight with Bob Mueller. We're also seeing a change in his legal team. We, we will have a new White House counsel in the coming days. Um, so much of his legal team was contingent on getting Kavanaugh through first. So you're going to see some turnover at White House counsel and in the outside legal team, which we will see what effect that has. I know a lot of the political advisors um, around the White House have very made very clear that they would prefer that Bob Mueller's investigation not be at the forefront of voters' minds, that do we need to elect a Democratic House to protect Bob Mueller's investigation? Um, do we need to pass a bill through the Senate defending him um, from perhaps dismissal? So this may just be shrewd politics on the president's part, listening to people, um, and it may also just be trying to have one less piece of evidence if Mueller decides to bring forward obstruction of justice charges, trying to use and using tweets um, as evidence of the president's mindset and intent. I'm not the lawyer here. You are. Yeah, that is that is that is where the White House political that's lawyer. Plausible. That, that's plausible. That's right. With within the political legal spectrum. Uh, two other things I wanted to bring up as maybe having impact on the midterms and maybe not. Uh, the first is is more prominent in the news, and that's uh, Jamal Khashoggi's uh, dif- disappearance. Uh, the, we're uh, recording this on Monday for release on Wednesday, so things may change between now and then. However, the president tweeted this morning that he had uh, talked with the king of Saudi Arabia, uh, that they deny this. The president over the weekend said, yes, he would uh, take some action if there was, quote, proof of the the Saudis uh, being involved in the disappearance or the murder of uh, reporter Khashoggi. Uh, then this morning after his message with or his phone call with the Saudi king, he releases this tweet and this statement that says that, well, it may have been rogue killers, and that was his quote, rogue killers, which seems to me that it would cut against his or support his argument, though there's no proof. It may be just a a band of, of rogue killers. Now, it seems to me that we have American public and uh, party members of both parties in Congress being very concerned about this situation. We have President Trump, who has had a long-term business relationship with the Saudis, uh, not wanting to mess that up or mess up the, the huge relationship between Saudis and, and buying American weapons. How is that going to play in the election if at all, I would like to think that the abduction, or the disappearance, 
of a journalist who works for the Washington Post would be a major concern. Unfortunately, nothing I have seen has shown any campaign able to harness that disappearance. The, the, the analogy of the hostage crisis at the end of the Carter administration is the closest analogy I can come up with, okay. but it's not perfect. Times are different. Americans were conditioned or uh, they, they had an opinion about what they were seeing happening in Iran. The Saudis have had a very careful and well-funded PR campaign um, trying to show the reforms of, in the kingdom um, have been, been more um, uh, liberalized uh, in, in, in recent years. The, the conversations I've had with foreign policy folks throughout the government are the president's talking to the wrong person. That, yes, he talked to the king, and yes, the king is important, but the king is not running day-to-day operations. It's a son, uh, who, whom we all know as MBS, who has been on the cover of Time magazine this year during his charm offensive trip to New York. Uh, we interviewed him about the reforms he was undertaking. Um, but there have been persistent worries not just in the U.S. foreign um, establishment, but in foreign capitals, about just what is the reality matching uh, MBS. I mean, he kidnapped <laughs> he kidnapped the prime minister uh, and held him hostage for, I believe, three days. Right. Um, he has perhaps an authoritarian streak that he's more willing to put on the world stage um, than some of his predecessors. Saudi Arabia is still by no means a, um, a, a liberal country, and I say that lowercase l, um, it is by, it's absolutely not democratic, lowercase d. Uh, MBS locked up his relatives to consolidate power in what was basically turning the Ritz into uh, a very nice prison, but a prison nonetheless. Um, and what, what, what is happening with the proxy wars throughout the region? I'm thinking of Yemen, I'm thinking of Iran. Like All of these conflicts are bubbling below the surface. All the while, the president has put a lot of faith in MBS. MBS has cultivated a relationship with Jared Kushner, um, West Wing senior advisor, son-in-law to the president. That um, they are basic. The headline in the Post, Washington Post, this week basically said they were two princes of their kingdoms. And how does that test um, what the U.S. government, who has which has long had a complicated history with the kingdom and its rulers? I mean, it's it's an open question how how much of this the president really wants to figure out. You you, you rightly note that it, this is a very large trading partner for the United States. It's the first country the president visited as president of the United States. There have been a lot of symbolic moments here, <laughs> and in the president's mind, everything comes down to a cost benefit here. Am I? Am I? It's not just on this, but it's on. Chinese tariffs. It's like, are we get are are we getting more than they're getting? And it, and I'm yet to see an instance where American values enter into his cost benefit um, analysis of whether yes, this has a lot of money and it's helping countries. And in the 60 Minutes interview, the president specifically called out Boeing's ability to sell um, aircraft to the Saudis. Right. At, at no point does do we want to f- consider. How are the Saudis going to use that aircraft? These are these are military aircraft. This is not to get to the royal family 
to Paris for the weekend. Um, the, these are these are killing machines. And what do we want? Do we do we care what the Saudis are doing there? Um, so it's a long way of saying this. This is a very major breach of diplomatic protocol um, for this to happen in Turkey and for the the Turkish government to come out and basically say they had bugged the Saudi embassy and they have um, recordings of what happened um, it is a very big show of hand for uh, the Turkish government. This is the stuff of a spy novel, and we're just not yet figured out. We, we just haven't figured out how what has happened, and you, you rightly note that this is a fast-changing story. Secretary of State Pompeo is, I'm looking at the clock, if he's not on his way, he is shortly to be on his way um, to confront the king. Um, but it comes down to, will the president trust U.S. intelligence that says one thing, our partner's intelligence that say one thing, or will he take the side of an autocrat who called him, or who, with whom he spoke by phone? Um, and we've seen this time and again, when the president deals with Vladimir Putin and says he believes Putin over U.S. intelligence on the issue of 2016 meddling, um, uh, on China, where he, he values his relationship with Xi, um, when, and now in Saudi Arabia, what, and does he trust the king over our intelligence and our allies' intelligence? When our allies took a very big risk of disclosing their intelligence assets, their, uh, their methods, so to speak, um, to help... A, a, a journalist working for an American publication um, perhaps be um, identified as be, having been lured to an embassy, murdered, and then dismembered if reports are true. You and I have been following it with keen interest. Those people who are interested in foreign policy certainly are following it. Is this something that can convert to an issue in the 2018 upcoming election within a month? Or is this something too obtuse, too ob uh, oblique for, for people to, to get their heads around? I, I, I am reluctant to say that this will even be on exit polls. I haven't talked to our polling team yet. It, it might not be up there. Foreign policy Got is it. not going into this um, election. Foreign policy is not up there. I mean, the economy is still... Issue number one, um, opioid crisis affects people every day. The trade war, you go out to the Midwest and talk to farmers in Missouri, Montana, North Dakota. They're worried about that part of the president's foreign policy. The, the fate of an individual in, a, in Istanbul is not something that affects their day-to-day um, -day life in a meaningful way. And I think that... that all, all politics is, I hate to say it, it's all about w how you feel. Right. And n this may anger some voters, but y you take a look at the media monitoring um, services um, that we look at. This isn't breaking through on local news when people are starting or ending their day. It, it's a complicated foreign policy story, because it, it, and it doesn't lend itself to broadcast news. Our local papers, for the most part, have been decimated by the um, internet and the economy and consolidation. This just isn't something that's getting a lot of attention. Um, you have to want to find this information, and 
for day-to-day voters, the rank-and-file uh, voters who determine who controls power in Washington, there, there are so many more important things um, competing for their time. I, I have to imagine, I, I'm not to, to single out my sister, she's more concerned about finding my niece's Halloween <laughs> costumes than the fate of a journalist she's never read. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. We've got hardliner uh, zealot Stephen Miller still in, in the president's ear on immigration. There was some talk late last week that uh, he was putting forth a new separation policy that did not resound well for the White House and the administration the first time around. Would they happen to do something about that pre-election? Well, it would be a cert- it certainly would be a, a, an easy way to fire up the base. And if that is the goal, putting Stephen Miller-style immigration policy out front would be good. The president, when asked about this during a 60-minute interview, would only hint at it, dangle it, right? Um, it, it, saying, you know, this has been a deterrent, which was the goal all along. Um, the question is, what is the corresponding reaction from the left? That the family separation policy is still ongoing. Um, they are still doing this. Um, but it has faded from the issues of reasons why um, my liberal friends want to um, vote for Democrats this fall. It is it has lost its um, it's lost its intensity. Part of it is it's become more difficult to get reporting out of there. Um, seasonally, border crossings tend to slow down um, around this time. We we're we're expecting another spike as it, it's all linked to agriculture cycles. Um, and whether the president wants to continue making this a focus. Um, I know a lot of people around the president wish he would not, uh, that this is just further hurting a party that has a legitimate problem with Hispanic and Latino voters. Um, I mean, you take a look at us going through and looking at the um, exit polls from Nevada, or excuse me, Arizona, 
um, where there's a pretty um, intense Senate race going on between Martha McSally and Kirsten Sinema. Um, McCain there won in 2016 by carrying. Um, I mean, he, he did not, he, he carried white voters, obviously, but he still, he also carried 41% of non-white voters in that state. Um, he held the, the Democrat there just two years ago to 54% on a year Trump was on the ballot. Um, to, for Republicans to have a chance in places like Arizona or California where there's a, there's a gubernatorial race, it's unlikely that that is really in play, but who knows? Um, you take a look at Texas where, you know, you can't, Beto O'Rourke cannot be completely below cannot completely blow out. Um, Ted Cruz cannot be completely blown out among right. Hispanic and Latino voters. He has to win some of them um, if, if he has any chance of holding on. Um, this, this has some real problems for states with large Hispanic and Latino communities. Florida, for instance, has both a competitive governor, governor's race and a competitive Senate race. And the Republicans down there in Florida, I spent some time with them, um, are just working their tails off trying to make inroads with the Hispanic community. They've got, the RNC alone has 41 bilingual um, field staffers down there trying to convince Spanish-speaking individuals, many of them from Puerto Rico, uh, after Hurricane Maria, to, you know what, give us a chance. Like, we might be in sync with you when it comes to school choice um, on the issue of abortion, on the issue of marriage equality, that, you know, we may have some shared conservative values and maybe you shouldn't just all automatically be with the Democrats on this. All of that gets erased if Trump makes immigration um, a, a major issue. Uh, as you and I are speaking, I'm watching the pool feed, and the president has just landed in Florida uh, to talk about Hurricane Michael damage. So we will see what, um, what half the president wrought on what? these candidates. Well, that's that, that's that's my last election question, and that is the the reaction of FEMA. We're already getting some grumblings from Florida. Uh, the current governor is running as the Republican candidate from Senate. Uh, you know, Florida is decimated and decimated in areas that are lower income than than much of the rest of the state. It will. Hurricane Michael and the reaction of FEMA uh, come into play with this election? It may, if those people get to vote. And that is an open question of how do you get your absentee ballot when your house has been destroyed? Okay. How do you go to a polling place in a community where everything has been decimated? I mean, if everything has been wiped off the map, where do the state election officials send the ballots to your county offices. If your county commissioners are trying to figure out with electric companies how to get, or utility companies, how to get electric and water, maybe get some cell phone towers up quickly so you can, loved ones can connect and try to coordinate, you know, sending, sending balloting machines is not a, a first order priority. Um, and that is, Hitting, you, you rightly note, poorer areas could um, could shape shift this a little bit, uh, especially in the governor's race, where um, Democrats have nominated a very charismatic um, African American mayor of Tallahassee, not far from the devastated area 
uh, to to lead their ticket on, as the gubernatorial nominee. Uh, he came out of nowhere. Uh, we did not. Uh, I had to Google him on primary night because <laughs> no one expected he stood as strong of a chance as he did. Um, and he has National Democrats pretty jazzed, has Republicans in Florida a little worried. Um, that said, the one component here, and you, you noted, Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, running for Senate as the Republican, he's just really good at natural disasters. Uh, he's coming up at the end of his second, he, he's in his second term. He has managed these crises before. He knows how to mobilize not just the policy people, but the rapid response, but also the media coverage. Um, and he's been, he's been seen largely as a competent disaster artist here. Um, and that may end up helping him fend off what many voters in Florida um, see as a lackluster interest in rebuilding um, states hit by disaster inside the Trump administration. It also, it's worth remembering that there, you know, the Carolinas are still in trouble, Georgia's in trouble, and all of these are politically important states with House races, Senate races, governors races, um, that all have, have had time to process what, for instance, Hurricane Florence has done to the Carolinas, and cleanup and rebuilding there has also been slow. Um, by no fault of, you know, no, it's not the president's fault uh, directly, but it's the people around him that will um, color how people see uh, how, if Washington cares about people like them. All right. Last subject for this round of talks between you and I or conversations, and that is the Justice Department intrigue with the Mueller investigation. So my observations, uh, again, from the heartland here, Mueller's investigation probably is still going strong, but uh, because of the upcoming elections, uh, there have been no new indictments uh, since really no great action. One guy was sentenced uh, to six months in prison, uh, but no great actions on the Manafort front or on the Cohen front uh, leading up to the elections. Meanwhile, we've got the president uh, basically telegraphing to the world that he's going to get rid of Jeff Sessions as soon as the election is over. And even talking to his assistant, Jeff Sessions' assistant, uh, as a possible replacement, and the uh, sort of musical chairs of who would take over uh, the the Mueller investigation, how that would all work out. Talk about the intrigue that the president is doing with Jeff Sessions and Rosenstein and others, and. Will Mueller pull the trigger immediately after the elections, and will we see a, a slew of, of new indictments coming down? It's really tough to make any predictions based on what Bob right. Mueller is going to do. His team has been um, steadfast in not leaking; that they just kind they let every they let everything go by. They are they are not in, interested in winning. Um, winning the news cycle, winning the tweet war. They're trying to win history here. And that they have a big people have worked with the dream team of lawyers he has assembled. Um, he's got like 250 years of high-level experience working on his inner circle, in his inner circle. They're not looking at 
um, uh, scoring points. They're looking at just finding the truth and doing their part to make sure um, those who may have participated in nefarious actions, um, either directly related to Russia or um, on the periphery of this, are, are, are held to account. The, the overwhelming sense among Republicans in the Senate in particular was they kind of expected everything to cool off around Labor Day. That's traditionally when voters start noticing that there's an election coming up. Right. It's also usually when your television airwaves there in places like Ohio get completely overrun. <laughs> right. I, I approve this message. You got um, it. That they, they generally thought Mueller trying to be above politics or outside of politics, but kind of, you know, just go back, lean back on his heels and not do anything that could in any way be seen as trying to shape the outcome of an election. Um, I, I remember in 2006 when he had all of the indictments coming down against Republicans uh, for various issues of corruption, um, the, re the Bush White House rightly worried, like, okay, guys, like, now you're just trying to, like, rub salt in our wounds when we're down, rushing these things out. Um, what, what, you're playing politics with the, judi with the judicial system. Not cool. Um, Mueller has intent intentionally, uh, to my view, not gotten involved there. Um, that said, these the, these these are in in the view, in the view of a lot of people here in Washington, just straight up killers. Uh, these are the best prosecutors in and around the U.S. government. They have been methodical in building their case. Um, it, it would not surprise me that they have a lot of things to share with us soon after the election, and have um, one, one member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who's a Republican, um, told me recently that don't expect one of those in case of emergency break glass, <laughs> um, kind of if, if it looks like things are going to be shut down. Uh, Mueller has worked in Washington long enough to know how to put something on autopilot that can't be derailed by um, a, a shift inside the Justice Department. Um, that there may be one of those, like, like I, I, in, in technology, like, uh, if, if I don't confirm that I'm still alive with a proof of life sign, all of this gets sent out. Yes. Um, it, it's, it's a very um, doomsday scenario, but you have to imagine that they have done enough to protect their work, their investigation, their facts, um, to keep them apart from whatever uh, shenanigans uh, the president may try to do with the Justice Department, and whether the Justice Department would go along with it. Um, Jeff Sessions, he did he, he did the he did the right thing here, saying, "I was involved in the campaign." Justice Department guidelines say, "I can't investigate a campaign. I was I can't oversee an investigation into a campaign I was party to." So he offloaded it to his deputy, which was like, what he kind of has to do. The problem is is, is is there enough political capital around his deputy, Rod Rosenstein, to insulate him from pressure? If, and if, if Trump fires Session on the explicit demand that the investigation shut down, for all of his problems um, at, uh, with political um, ear, Jeff Sessions spent time in the Senate. The Senate is one to protect their own and their formers. Right. And it's not... It, it, you, you could very easily see Republicans on the Judiciary Committee saying, 
you know what, we're just not going to confirm your attorney general pick. You fired a, someone for no valid reason other than he didn't uh, protect your back enough. So you know what, you don't get a, you don't get a re- confirmed AG. Um, that's a very real risk that if you, Republicans are, not, especially Republicans on the ballot in 20, uh, do not want to have to be on the record defending what could be obstruction of justice conducted in real time. Like you look at the twenty the twenty twenty map, the Senate map does not look good for Republicans. Um, they they several of them could be in in play immediately. Uh, I know a lot of Democrats hope they are, and for, make, forced with this choice, it would be good politics for several of them just to say, you know what, not cool, not going to confirm, um, and show a little distance with the president right out of the gate. Again, this is all speculation. A lot can happen in the next 22 days um, until the election. But you have to imagine, you don't have to imagine, I know, um, <laughs> this is um, consuming a lot of White House advisors' time, worried about, worrying about if this happens, then what happens, then what happens, then what happens. You've already seen some fraying with the president, um, with, with people who are choosing to leave Congress rather than defend him. I'm thinking of Jeff Flake and Bob Corker. Right. You, you could very easily see Lisa. I mean, Lisa Murkowski has already defied the president, voting against the Kavanaugh nomination. Um, there are still um, as much as every as much oxygen as Trump takes up in the room. It's worth remembering that every one of these senators is an individual who has their own political interests to put above anything else, and survival is the name of the game. And if if Trump starts going down a path of being an anchor, you can you can very easily see um, uh, them not just putting an arm length, but a football field length between them and the White House. Phil, I always give you last chance every time we talk. Uh, we've been going through my agenda, but what should we out here in the Midwest? Uh, be looking for uh, what what might be on the horizon that we don't know about or that we're underestimating. So my my personal plug here is for a story I'm reporting that'll be um, um, it, it's a story that I think is an important piece of this election, and that is as much as everyone keeps giving um, excitement around very. Uh, very progressive candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, who in her primary win basically ended the political career of a a potential next um, Democratic leader. And all of the interest on the left among groups like Indivisible and Swing Left and uh, the Women's March um, successors, these these groups are not um, actually having victories in terms of candidates in places where they can win. Uh, an analysis um, that uh, that came out last week showed that um, rough the uh, from Brookings, a very respected centrist organization here in Washington, that self-identified progressives are winning primaries less often than the self-identified establishment wing of the Democratic Party, and those progressives who are winning um, on a far-left agenda are winning their primaries and on the ballots this fall. But they're in places where it's an, they're more often than not to be in an R plus 10, meaning Republicans have a 10, 
10-point advantage. So it's unlikely that they're going to win. So for all of the excitement around um, very progressive, often young, often female candidates, um, they may not um, end up being the the faces, the power, the new Democratic um, caucus in af- after November's election. That there's still a very strong strain of moderates and pragmatists inside the Democratic Party um, that are running in places like Cincinnati, Ohio One, Aftab, Paraval, right. and um, Danny O'Connor up in the North Columbus District. And they're not running as part of the angry mob just screaming about impeachment or um, Trump's taxes or all of the things that get people very fired up and health care for all and um, universal income. They're not running on that platform. They're running on just pragmatic, as you would put it, heartland values. And those might be the people who tilt, uh, if, there is a, if there is a Democratic majority, it's those centrists that may end up powering uh, the, new, uh, the new Congress if it's a Democratic majority, which presents a whole host of ca- <laughs> problems for, okay, committee chairmen, who gets to be the leader. Right. Uh, but the hard part is just getting the majority in the first place. And you look, at, you look around the Midwest, and you've got, you've got several races in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Minnesota, um, downstate Illinois, northern Kentucky, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, there are the road to the majority might be through the Midwest. Well, Phil, as always, thank you f- so much for talking with us. And uh, let's let's talk again after the midterms. Uh, you know, maybe a lame duck Congress. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the political fallout and and see what's happening then. Okay. Of course, and we also have a government uh, funding bill that expires the first week of December. So we still have that Sweet. looming so, for the lame duck. <laughs> we will talk about, about all of that uh, once we get this election behind us. All right? Fingers crossed. Thanks, Tom. Today we've been talking with Time, Inc.'s Washington correspondent, Phil Elliott, about the status of politics in Washington as we approach the 2018 midterm elections. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets.